discussion with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. On Instagram Live, so not taking any calls, you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram, or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show, or suggest topics or books for the program. The shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Uh, let's get to the books of the week. Uh, the book of the week for this week, which I'll talk about on Monday's show is Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain by Lisa Feldman Barrett. Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. Uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett wrote How Emotions Are Made, uh, which I discussed on the show a couple of years ago. Very interesting book. This book actually just came out. Um, this is kind of me nerding out. I ordered this book early, like a couple months ago, and I just received it a couple of days ago. So some people are waiting for the newest iPhone or uh, the newest sneaker. Sometimes I get excited about a new book. So looking forward to reading Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain by Lisa Feldman Barrett and sharing it with you on next week's show. The book of the week that I'll talk about today, which was last week's book of the week, is This Is Your Time by Ruby Bridges. This is Your Time by Ruby Bridges. And this book, it's also a book that just came out. It came out the week before. Um, and it's a, a great book. It's actually geared towards, it's a letter she's writing to the young people of America. It starts off to the young peacemakers of America. But I think uh, it could be good for anyone to read. But if you have someone a young person in your life, I highly recommend it, but even for yourself, I would recommend it as well. So let me tell you first about Ruby Bridges and who uh, she is and also why she is a civil rights icon. So as she says herself, um, 60 years ago in 1960, my life changed forever. Although I was not aware of it, our nation was changing too. What I remember about that time through my six-year-old eyes is that there was extreme unrest, much like we see today. I was chosen to be the first black child to go to an all-white school, William France Elementary School in my hometown, New Orleans. So in 1960, and actually uh, I made a post on my Instagram a few days ago, I think it was like November 14th, yes, November 14th, 1960, so just almost exactly 60 years ago till to now, um, Ruby Bridges at the age of six was in a way thrust into the civil rights discussion as she was the first child to go to an all-white school. So you have to keep in mind in that time, uh, schools were segregated, meaning that there was school for the black children and schools for the white children, and you could not go to the all-white school if you were black and vice versa and you know there was the colored restrooms you maybe have seen those signs things like that and so this was a very important step in 1954 the civil uh, so the supreme court ruled that uh, desegregating or segregation of schools was not legal and so that happened in the 1954 case of the u.s supreme court um, deciding between brown versus the board of education so it deemed 
that racial segregation in schools was unconstitutional. And so things had to change. Now, it's interesting, 1954, that's when the Supreme Court made that decision, but it wasn't until 1960 that Ruby Bridges entered that school. And it, this book, uh, it's, it's interesting because you get to see a lot of pictures. Every page or every time you turn the page, there's a picture with text on the other side. And again, it's her letter to the youth of America, but I think it could be really powerful for anyone. And seeing this little girl, um, she's so small. And even in some of the pictures, you can see maybe fear in her eyes uh, as she talks about, she really didn't know what was going on. She wasn't aware of the historical significance of what was happening. She did know that there was unrest. And I'll talk about some of what made it very clear to her that there was unrest, but she didn't really understand the gravity of what was going on. But this little six-year-old, uh, six-year-old girl, she had to be escorted to and from school by four federal marshals. And this is from the book. She says, under the order of the president of the United States, because people were afraid for my safety. How uh, heartbreaking that this six-year-old girl and to have this girl go to school, they had to have marshals, federal marshals protecting her. They were afraid of her safety. And there's pictures in the book where you see protesters with signs. Um, of course, as you can imagine, all white because they were protesting the, the desegregation of the schools. And she had to see this every day. So she says, I walked through crowds of people yelling, screaming threats, throwing things at six-year-old me. Uh, I mean, just think about that. They were against the integration of black and white children in the same school. I had been so excited to meet and make new friends at school and was met with something utterly different and terrifying. And so she had to, she went to the school and it was a big moment. They were afraid for her safety. Can you imagine that? A six-year-old girl to think of her as the, the threat in a way. So they had to protect her. And so you see these images of the four marshals. Some of them are very classic and famous pictures. You maybe have seen them of her uh, being protected. There's, you know, officers at the door making sure she's safe. Now, um, what happened was it wasn't just she went to the school and it, it, that they, uh, you know, allowed her to go in no problems. There definitely was a lot of problems. So outside she was faced with all this uh, crowds, people throwing things at her. And actually the cover of the book is um, a portion or most of a famous painting by Norman Rockwell called uh, The Problem We All Live With. And in it you see a little girl walking with some U.S. Marshals. You see a wall that has the n-word on it and also you see what's the remains of a tomato as if someone you know has thrown a tomato at her and it, it's considered a classic image in the civil rights um, era or movement or uh, to, to commemorate or symbolize some of that and it's heartbreaking to think of that again that she was seen as a threat um, but people at that time thought of segregation as even they would use the bible to justify it and think that this was something bad and something wrong to allow black kids and white kids to go to the same school. And so she was, again, thrust into this historical position at this school in New Orleans, being the, the first um, black child at that school. And so she shares her experience outside of the school. There's a protest. A lot of parents pulled their kids from the school. Not only that, um, a lot of the teachers didn't want to teach there. How sad this beautiful little six-year-old girl um, 
and people don't want to be in the same school as her parents didn't want their teachers there uh, and even students left and then uh, you know of course you you see all that sadness and negativity and the negative side of of human beings and human behaviors and actions and then you also see Barbara Henry who was her teacher and she shares how Barbara Henry came all the way from Boston to teach me for the entire year she sat alone with me in that classroom and taught me everything I needed to know she really made school fun we never missed a day that whole year we knew we had to be at school for each other so she was being taught by this woman Barbara Henry was her teacher but no other kids were in her class so again she was excited to make friends to to meet new kids but her class was empty it was just her um, because uh, parents did not want their kids in in school with this girl because she was black the color of her skin and she also shares how Barbara Henry her teacher who made school fun who made her feel safe she talks about how if she got past the an angry crowd outside of the door or outside of the school she knew she would be safe because Barbara Henry was there um, and she says she was like my best friend because she was there taking care of her and so you see this again beautiful within the tragedy within the protesting and people being against Ruby going to this school Barbara Henry thankfully we can say was clearly on the right side of history and wanted to teach this young girl and so that's quite beautiful um, but seeing the pictures of the protests, you see even people I'm looking at one now where a mother is holding her baby and yelling. You obviously can't tell what she's yelling, but you see the anger, anger and hatred in their faces of the people yelling all for this little girl to go, go to school, uh, with, with these other people, these other kids. Um, and so the book also explores the civil rights movement to some degree. Again, the book is titled, this is your time. And it's her letter to the young people of America trying to encourage them. And she talks about how, you know, what I think is interesting is she didn't choose to become, in some ways, this civil rights icon in the sense that she was one of the first children and the first children at this school, black children. Um, however, uh, the um, experience she's had since then is that she has continued speaking, continued uh, being someone who has made progress so she wasn't uh, picking to be this first child that was not really up to her obviously but what she's done since then is she's done a lot of public speaking she's done a lot to help further things like um, desegregation or promoting civil rights uh, and now i'm looking at a page at a picture of her with some children after a few months of attending the school which is a quite a sweet picture and so even just for the pictures you could enjoy this book uh, so i'd highly recommend it for that but the book is giving encouragement to people, the young people, but I think really it goes for all of us. That's what I thought was interesting. It's, it's geared towards the young people, but I was very motivated, inspired by it. Um, I thought it was very interesting to, to read this book, but it was heartbreaking to see and imagine a, a little child being treated this way just because she wants to go to school. And for us all to keep that in mind, that when we, are against or hating any group, we can look at what people have gone through and what's happened in the past and learn from that. What I'll probably talk about later on the show is how, you know, it's very easy to look back in history and see who was in the right side and the wrong side. It's harder when you're in the moment trying to figure out what's the right thing to do, what's the wrong thing to do, or what are the 
things not to do and to try to figure out how to not be on the wrong side of history. It's very clear in hindsight. I think I remember there's some quote that, you know, life only makes sense backwards, but it only could be lived forwards. So you, you, it makes sense when you look back on everything, but you have to live it going forward. And that's something for all of us to, to deal with. Um, and the last page of the book, she says, don't be afraid. This is your time in history. Keep your eyes on the prize and at all costs, stay united. Ruby B. And I think that's a, a very powerful message, especially in this moment at, and at all costs, stay united. I've talked recently on the show about how uh, this is one of the biggest challenges we have. We're living in a country called the United States, but we're very disunified. There's a very um, a lack of unity right now with political polarization and things that we're dealing with. And so I thought that was a good way to end the book and at all costs stay united. So the book is touching. The pictures really uh, give you images to understand what she was going through, seeing people yelling about a little girl going to school. Again, we could think that it's easy to look back on that and say how silly or stupid or wrong of them, but there could be something you're doing, thinking, believing that might be similar in that sense that uh, might have a, you know, the same type of hatred or negativity might be in something that we're doing. And so I hope people will read this book. I highly recommend it for everyone, but especially if you know a young person in your life and you want to give them a book that might inspire them, also educate them and understanding some of what happened. What's also interesting is you look at the, you know, I saw a few interviews of her recently, um, but also on the back of the book, you see a picture of her now and you can see this woman is not so old. I guess she'd be 66 if she was six, 60 years ago. And this woman was the first person as a child to go to a school to be a black child in a white school. So it, it does in a way uh, remind us that we might think that some of these things are so historic and so old, but they're not. She's still alive, um, giving talks and, and obviously wrote this book. And so it's not like it's something uh, so old. And so when we think about these issues related to race and racism in America, and if we think that we've handled all of them and they've all passed, it could be a reminder that we're not so far away from the prejudice, segregation, different types of ways that racism has existed in America and continues to exist. So hope you will read this book, you know, buy it for a young person in your life, buy it for yourself. Um, and I hope you will enjoy it. Again, that was Ruby Bridges. The book is This Is Your Time. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the first segment talked about the book, This Is Your Time by Ruby Bridges. Hope you'll check it out. Um, Ruby Bridges was the first girl to go to an all-white school, the first black child to go to an all-white school back on November 14th, 1960. Uh, and she shares her letter to the young people of America, but I think it's a good one for anyone to read. So hope you'll check that out. But what I wanted to talk about in this segment was, uh, as I mentioned, when you look at these pictures and you see people protesting this young girl going to a school, 
it's heartbreaking. It's sad. You know, even it looks ugly, to be honest, when you see it, people yelling. There's even one picture where they have a fake coffin with a black doll inside the coffin. Um, and then you see someone looks like they're almost laughing. It's, you know, it's, it's horrible what, what you're seeing. So much hatred, so much negativity. And, and as I mentioned in the last segment, it's very easy to look back on history and see what you think is the right and the wrong sides. And we'd all like to think we would be on the right side of history. We would all be on the side of love and acceptance and, um, you know, the tolerant side, the whatever is the good side. But obviously, if we look and we see that a good majority of the population was feeling a certain way, we have to face the grim reality that we might not have been. Of course, not everyone would be. And then not only that, taking that to today, to look at what's going on in the world today and where might I be on the wrong side of history with what's happening in the world today? Because um, that is a tough question because we don't always really know. We don't have the luxury of hindsight when we're in the present, but there are things in the world that are unjust and we can be on one side or the other. And we have to ask ourselves about that. And that could be a tough one. We might think we're always knowing what's good, what's bad. Um, if we're against a certain group, it's because they're not good in some way. But when I read a book like this, it's another reminder of any time you're on the side of intolerance, any time you're on the side of being against a certain group of people in whatever way, it virtually always will be the wrong side of history, especially a group just for being who they are, background, nationality, sexual orientation. And so we see this throughout history where people are um, trying to get rights for certain people. So we see women, of course, uh, had had, uh, you know, that, and that's something that um, they're still, of course, we're still trying to bring about equality. We see it with different races and then different countries might have certain things. I've worked with a lot of Iranians who will talk about the racism and prejudice within Iran or the Iranian community. I've heard some heartbreaking stories from people who are, for example, Afghan and the way that they've been talked about by Iranians as somehow being less than by other Iranians. So we, we see this all around. So it's something you have to ask yourself, are there any groups that I hold some negative thoughts or feelings about and how do I reflect that? And how could I possibly be wrong? Because it might seem very simple to think that, uh, you know, whatever I'm thinking is right. What I also wanted to look at is another aspect of this. When we talk about bringing about equality, when we talk about ending injustice, sometimes people will say, well, we're never going to solve that or we'll never achieve some kind of perfect equality or or justice, and by equality, I don't mean equality of outcome, I mean equality of opportunity and fairness and rights. Um, and so that they say that to then give up. If we can't, you know, we're not going to solve this, so what's the point? Or, you know, if we're trying to figure out equality, there's so many different ways that people can be treated differently based on factors that might not matter. So we should not make, you know, this a big issue. We should not try to to fix things. We're never going to get it right. It's kind of another way of saying when people say, well, you know, life's not fair. Sometimes we'll hear that when people are trying to figure out 
um, something about the world. They, you know, you say something and then at some point when they don't know what else to say, they say, well, life isn't fair. So you might have to just accept that. And I think that's the easy way out to just say, well, life isn't fair and give up. Life is not fair. Life will never be perfectly fair in the world. Bad things can happen to good people. Um, look, children get sick, right? And that, that's heartbreaking. When you see children in the hospital, that to me is always just this indication that things that happen in the world won't always be fair or there won't always be just this uh, justice in the sense that everything always works out. But that doesn't mean we should not fight towards or strive towards creating justice in the world and that every pain we take away is not valuable because it is. Um, it's like, I was imagining this as I was thinking about this topic last night. Imagine if you are walking by and some people are beating up, four people are beating up on some guy. Now, should you intervene if you can? I think most people would say yes. But now imagine you're about to intervene. They're beating this guy up bad. He's getting really badly injured. And right before you're about to intervene, some guy comes up to you and says, you know what? There's still going to be violence in the world. So, so why would you stop? this? What difference does it make? There will still be violence in the world. Now we would almost laugh at that because we would say, but you are helping this person. You're maybe saving his life or, you know, preventing him from getting harmed. We would see value in that. But that's exactly the same thing people say when we're, you know, feeding homeless people or helping some children here. We think, well, you're not going to take away the problem completely. So what's the point? That's something we tell ourselves. Or imagine your child is in extreme pain, extreme pain, excruciating pain, crying, yelling, screaming. Imagine that your child or just a child. And the doctor says, look, we can apply this ointment to your child and it's going to take away 90% of their pain. Could you imagine a parent saying, oh, but it won't take away hundred percent. So who cares? Stop. Of course not. They would say, yes, absolutely. Let's put that ointment. Let's do that treatment to take away 90% of my child's pain. Of course, I might be sad that they still have some pain, but I'll be so happy that it'll go from something so bad to at least less. And so we can't let ourselves get sucked into this type of mentality that if we can't completely solve a problem or take it away, or if something is so aspirational, we can never achieve it completely, we should just give up. Because then we should almost not do anything. Nothing is perfect. No issue gets solved in one day or in one lifetime, or do we really solve anything completely? Is anything perfect? No. So to think that we should not strive to make things better because it won't be perfect is in a way our minds trying to just trick us into feeling okay about the situation. Because what happens is when we see injustice, when we see something is not okay, it, it makes us not feel good. Sometimes we can call that what compassion can feel like is that you have this sense that uh, things, something is not okay. You feel the person's pain, so to speak, and it makes you want to act. It makes you want to help uh, the person. So you see someone suffering, you feel something, you want to help them, right? That's how you, we usually feel about compassion. When you say you feel something for someone, you want to help them uh, if you can. Now, if they're hurting, and then you make that hurt go away. Now that bad feeling inside of you goes away and you feel good. But this is where it gets challenging. Many times in life, and especially many bigger issues, you can't just take it away. Your actions might 
play a part. Your actions might do something, but it's not going to completely take away someone's suffering, or if we're talking some bigger issue, it won't. And so we're kind of left to make this decision. Do I keep caring, knowing that I won't take away this problem completely, so I'll still feel some pain inside of me, or we take this other route, kind of doing some sort of mental gymnastics, a type of defense mechanism, and maybe think it's okay the way things are, or it's not that bad what's happening. And that's something that we tend to do. So I I tell you, look, right outside of your door, there's this five-year-old girl who is cold and hungry. And you'll say, of course, let's bring her in the home. We're going to feed her, get her warm. She's going to be good. When I tell you there's 500,000 children outside of your door, you know you can't take them all in. And so now you might not even take in one because you feel so overwhelmed. You think, okay, maybe, well, I don't know. It's not my problem. Or we think, you know, it doesn't make a difference. Or maybe they did something to end up that way. We justify their pain. We blame the victim. We do something. But we have to resist that urge to go towards thinking things are okay when they are not okay, or that if something is unjust, maybe it's okay because we realize we can't fix it. Sometimes they call this the collapse of compassion. You can call it different things. Um, But when we feel like we can't fix a problem, it makes us want to get away from seeing the problem. So we either turn a blind eye We don't want to see it anymore. There's so many kids starving. Let's not look at it. Or we say it's not that bad. You know, it's not that big of a deal. Again, life is not fair, something like that. Or uh, you know what? Maybe if they overcome that horrible obstacle, that's that's one of the best ways to grow, right? So maybe it's good that they are suffering and going through something like that. Um, or, you know, they probably did something. They, These kids or these people, whoever we're talking about, they're somehow to blame for what's happening. We find a way, and we can understand that. It doesn't feel good to see suffering and to not be able to fix it. That's actually part of the beautiful side of being human, that we feel for each other. That when you see someone suffering, even you don't know them, you feel something. You want to help them. That's good. And it gets into these complicated aspects of empathy. Um, what's his name? Paul Bloom. Paul, I think it's Paul Bloom. Yeah, he's a, a psychologist. Wrote a book called Against Empathy. Um, the title very provocative. It's good. He's he's promoting kindness, but he does talk about how empathy can get us into trouble and in way make us irrational. And I think it's a good book. I, I discussed it on the show. I think about two years ago. It is a good book. I'm glad I read it, and it did have some interesting perspectives of how we have to be careful because you see the picture of one child and you might help that child way more than you should help all the children or in some way we can help more. And this is something that we see uh, online, especially because social media and the internet can make things go viral or we can see the picture or video of one kid, one family, and then they get showered with, with, with love or with actual money in different ways. And it's not a bad thing, but I think it's an interesting thing. I saw just yesterday, it was a really cute story, this like 80-year-old man, 83-year-old man, something like that, a pizza delivery guy was talking with the family that he was delivering to and it was on video, and then they spread the video and then people raised money, I think like $12,000 for this man, and he was so sweet when they were giving, he said, oh no, and they, you know, it was a very beautiful moment, 
Um, and so I'm not definitely against that. I think that's good. But what I think is interesting is that when you look at something like that and you think when we see him, we say we, we should take care of him as a society, as mankind, whatever you want to call it, as a country, let's say, if you, we're talking about America, but hopefully any citizen of the world. Uh, but when we don't see the faces, we don't necessarily help. And I think rather than thinking we become irrational wanting to help this person, it's almost like we actually want to tap into this genuine thing that we want to um, see the people who are suffering. We need to recognize they're real human faces. You know, they're not just a statistic of suffering. It's real people. And when we see that they're real and when we see they're real, we won't want to not help. We want to help. We can't help but help. And that's actually a good thing. When people see someone suffering, I don't think anyone, uh, I really, I know people, sometimes can think of, uh, let's say the corporations or the rich people or this people or that people, they don't care about others. And there are ways that that does happen. I'm not saying no one does, but I genuinely think when people get close to, whether it's seeing, especially interacting with people who are suffering, people can't help but to help. It is part of who we are. And so we actually will want to do something for whoever it is that is suffering. And we should look at our role, recognize that when we see we can't solve a problem, it makes us want to either avoid the problem or deny that it's there or some combination of those to not see it anymore. But we have to challenge that within ourselves. So when you hear one million kids are suffering with this, you're like, ah, I can't, I can't help them. But imagine each kid you help, that's important. And so don't think of your job as to completely solve any problem. Almost never does that happen that someone completely solves a problem all on their own. Your job is to just do one part. So if you think of you know, the history of that problem as one book, you have to write one page or maybe not even one page, one word, but contribute to that book being written, contribute to helping others in some way. And those things accumulate and add up. And each pain you help take away has value. Each pain in your own life that has been taken away has value. Each pain that you've seen in someone else's life has value. No act of kindness goes unnoticed or does not have value. And keep that in mind, that it can be easy to as Ruby Bridges talked about, we can take our eye off of the prize. She said, keep your eyes on the prize of bringing about justice and unity and solving whatever the injustices are and recognize that we have human tendencies that can make us ignore or want to not see a problem. Let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Uh, during the commercial break on Instagram Live, got a question about how do we uh, teach our children to be kind or, um, you know, that type of a question, which is a good one. And parents often wonder about that. How can I help my children be more this way or that way? And I think, um, I shared a bit about this on, on Instagram live, but I'll continue on this topic. Now, the most important thing when you're trying to teach your child, anything is modeling that behavior yourself. So if you want my, if you know, you say, I want my kids to know that X is important. Well, you have to show them X is important in your life, whatever that is. So if it's about kindness, you really have to make sure you are genuinely being a kind person, not fake kind because kids are very perceptive and they'll pick up on it. So if you sometimes say 
nice things really loud, hoping your kids hear it. But then later on, they see you talking bad to people, being rude, saying negative things, whatever it might be. They'll see that. So they see the sum total of what you're talking about or whatever the issue is. They don't just hear a few things. So, you know, so my parents, I tell my kids that this is so important and then they act totally different. Well, it doesn't really matter if you tell them something, but show them something else. Uh, the actions definitely do speak louder than words. And we're all affected by that. Someone tells us do this thing and they do the opposite. We're like, eh, doesn't really tell me they think that thing is so good. So the first thing is to make sure you are genuinely acting in a kind way. And I, I want to, again, emphasize genuine means really you mean it to be kind to others and to show that. I think it's good for you to do that anyway, but your children might help and be that motivation. And I really do think in this cliche type of a way, someone actually asked the question during the commercial break also, is kindness genetic or learned? I think anything has a genetic component, but I, I do believe we all have a large capacity to increase our ability to be kind. It is one of those things that really can can be worked on a lot. And so we have a wide range of that, and we obviously want to get to that higher range of being kind to others. And so we want to help instill that in our children, but we want to first grow. We can allow ourselves to feel more love for others. Um, there's a lot of ways to do that. Even there's some meditations that are loving kindness meditations. If to you, that sounds like something that makes you roll your eyes. I can understand, but it's something where you try to expand the circle of people you have kindness or love for. Um, you can start with yourself, actually, which is very important to have that kindness and love for yourself. And then you can start expanding it. Family or loved ones, that might be easy. Uh, then you expand it further and you get to uh, people you don't know that well, acquaintances. And then even the more challenging stuff is getting to people you don't really like and try to feel loving, kind thoughts for them. That's when it can start to get really tricky and next level. And so th that's something that I would encourage anyone to do and for any of us to try to, to work on that. And again, it, it's a win-win. You will feel better yourself as well to feel good and have that kind feeling for others. I even think it expands to the world, living beings, the universe. And I don't mean the universe just in the sense of like, the universe is going to give you something, but we can try to have a loving feeling towards everything that we encounter. Um, I do think especially animals would fall under that, that it's compatible with being a kind person to have love for living beings in some way, to not want to cause pain for them, to not try to hurt them. And if we can prevent that hurt, I think absolutely that would make sense to want to do that. So you can expand your own feeling of loving kindness for others, which also means you have to have that mindset. Even some of the questions and comments that were brought up during the commercial break, which I won't get into all of them, but it does have the sense that being kind uh, can be a disadvantage, can hurt you, or being unkind can be an advantage in life. And there are some truths to some of those things, depending on how you do it. Sometimes people who are unkind do get ahead in life in certain ways. I'm not going to disagree with that. But does that mean they're necessarily happy 
or feeling fulfilled and feeling good about their life, I would usually disagree with that. So it depends on your view of life. If you think, well, how do I get ahead? How do I make sure people don't take advantage of me? How do I make sure I'm at the top? And, you know, this kind of hierarchical mindset about winning and losing. Well, then you might focus on kindness being something bad or a weakness. Even some people, uh, I've seen this quote before, which I think is good. It says, don't mistake my kindness for weakness. And I agree with that. I don't think being genuinely kind comes from a weak place. It comes from a place of strength. Some people act uh, nice. I actually make that distinction, even though uh, that is not being kind. So to me, the difference between nice and kind is nice is I'm trying to uh, be liked, avoid conflict, um, to give off a certain image of myself. And it's more about a fake way of just trying to make things good. So to me, nice is a bad word. I know it sounds good. Nice is, it sounds, if we say something is nice or someone is nice, generally we think it's good. But to me, nice, when we think of it in that way, is actually not good. And, and it's something I've talked about on the show before because I think it is an important distinction. And we think about it. If someone says, oh, she's so nice or he's so nice, we usually mean they don't disagree, um, they don't have a conflict, they always are nice to us in the pleasant way, they'll smile at us so they won't tell us if they're upset. They're just easy in that way, but it's not genuine. Kindness means it's coming from the goodness of your heart that you want to do something detached from the result, meaning that if you're kind to someone, you think it's the right action to do. Now you pay attention to the result. You can't ignore it because you learn even from the result. Let's say you have a loved one and you buy them a gift and you see they don't really like the gift that much. You you learn about the gift and why they didn't like it and what they do like. Um, but in a way you're detached from it that that doesn't mean you shouldn't have done it or you get mad at them. And so we can see that distinction. Sometimes people will do something and say, well, you didn't like it. Well, it's your fault. You're this or you're that. And so we can see that it doesn't seem like it was coming from kindness. It was coming from, well, I'm giving this to you because I want you to make me feel good or to give me some kind of feedback or to see me in a certain way or tell people about my gift. We can see the intention is not so pure. And so I always ask people to look, what is your intention in whatever it is you're doing? When you, um, you know, think about something that you're, an action you're taking based on the intention, it can be very different. Someone uh, takes you to dinner. It could be because they kindly want to take you to dinner. It could be because they want to take advantage of you in some way later on down the line, whatever that might be. Or someone says something nice, what's their intention? And of course, we don't want to focus on judging others' intentions, but we want to ask ourselves, why did I do this? Why did I say this. So we want to move towards kindness, not niceness. And even your kids will see that because they'll see if you're being nice, it just means you're trying to make people like you. So in front of someone's face, you're like, oh yes, whatever, you know, the nice things we say in Persians, we're very good at that. But then when they leave, they'll see the way you talk about them or the way you feel about them, or you avoid that person or whatever else you do. So if you're being nice, your kids will see that that's just the way to act, to make others like you but it's not actually coming from a real good place. You don't actually like those people. Now, since the question was about uh, uh, parents, I want to mention something, and someone is asking about being nice to kids. One thing I've actually recognized is that children 
when they often say nice, they mean kind a lot of ways. Of course, this is not every time and, you know, there's, it's not something I'm saying that's scientific, but I've noticed with kids, they say, oh, I like him. He's nice. They don't mean nice in the way we're talking about when um, people, you know, are just being pleasant or trying to avoid conflict. They mean, oh, I've seen that man, that woman, or that boy or girl, whoever, uh, being good to other people or being uh, not mean to them in that sense. So in that simplified sense. So just something because someone asks, you know, should I not tell my kids to be nice? Um, you know, it's, I don't think it's bad in that sense. I think it can be, and they sometimes will mean it in that way of being kind, but you can even focus more on kindness and what that means and genuinely being good. And a lot of times when we tell our kids to be nice, we even tell them be nice. So other people like you or be nice, you know, so that uh, people will become popular or you'll do these things. We talk about it in that instrumental way to, to how we can get people to like us. And that's not something you want to teach your kids. Be nice so people like you. Because that also means, well, if they do something you don't like, let them do it. If um, they ask you to do something you don't want to do it, you should do it. And that's not necessarily the case. That actually violates being kind to ourselves to just be nice to others. So when we look at kindness and we're trying to teach that, we can have conversations with our kids about what that means to be kind to others. And you also do want to teach them about themselves. Unfortunately, um, we, in most cultures, especially Iranian culture, we focus on make sure other people like you. And so we almost reinforce this idea that it doesn't matter your intention or kindness doesn't really matter. But if people think you're nice, you're good. That's all that matters. So someone says, you know, can I have this? You say no, even if you want it, you offer it when you don't want to. So unfortunately, our culture reinforces niceness to a high degree. Sometimes you can say politeness maybe, but this niceness, which is not actually good. And your kids will see that. You're not genuinely being kind. You want to make sure other people think you're nice or good, but it doesn't matter what you are or who you care about or don't care about. It just depends on how you show yourself. And that's actually not good. So again, how you act in that way, your kids will see. And also what you tell your children is very important about that, about, oh, we want to be kind. It feels good. And, and someone is asking, a few people have mentioned on Instagram about this as well, about being kind to yourself and teaching your kids that as well, that you should love yourself and that we find this balance. These things are complicated. How do you love yourself, but also love others? Where are those boundaries? Where are those lines? <clears throat> and it's easy to think that uh, it's if, if something bothers you, don't do it, but it does matter what we're talking about. Sometimes your friend might call you and if it's something really stressful, you stay up and you're tired and you talk to your friend. Now, if it constantly starts happening and they don't seem to appreciate you or care about what you're going through, then you might change your mind about how you respond and realize this is not being kind to me, but this is a challenge. It's not something black and white to say, this is how you're kind to others and make sure you're okay. But you want to teach your kids that, that being kind to you, you take care of yourself, not in some kind of egotistical because, you know, you're my kid and you're better than all the other kids and who cares about anyone else? Not at all that way. You show them the value of every human, but that you teach them you are the only one that can take care of you first. So you have to make sure you're okay. You can tell me if you're thirsty, if you're cold, if you need something and make sure you're all right. So you have to be the one that tells me, but we also do care about and are going to be aware about other people and make sure they're good too. And you show them 
Uh, sometimes you might hear this, the language or the mindset of abundance versus scarcity, that there's enough for everyone. Everyone can be okay. We want to make sure everyone is okay. Oh, that person is cold. Let's help them. Doesn't mean you have to go freeze. You're going to be warm too. We're going to help them. And you can show them this mindset that everyone can be okay. Very often, most people can have this mindset, especially depending on the different cultures. Iranian culture has a lot of this. There is a scarcity mindset. There's not enough. Someone got married. Oh no, there's not going to be a husband or wife for me. Someone made money. Oh, I'm not going to get money. I hope they lose their money. And we have this scarcity mindset that actually makes us unkind. Because when you have a scarcity mindset, you feel like you're in a zero sum game. You feel like you're fighting for survival. So if anyone else does well, that's not good for you. So you're not going to genuinely want to help someone else. So to have actually kindness, you have to come from a space that there actually is, we can make everyone okay. We can take care of everyone and we can promote that. And also I would hope promote to your children when we talk about kindness to have the mindset that, you know what, sometimes people are not okay and we want to help them. And you can talk to them about issues that are happening in the world. You want to talk to them about what's happening and you can have those conversations from a very young age with them about things. They'll, they'll be okay. They can handle it depending on how old they are, how much you might talk about the details, but make sure their mindset is also, I have to be okay first. I'm going to take care of myself, but I'm always going to also be aware of others and show them the value of that, both that it's the right thing to do and it feels good to genuinely be kind to others as well. That brings us to the end of tonight's show. As always, a big thank you to Amir. Thank you to everyone listening out there. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Jalakwi. Have a wonderful night.